This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. There's all these times where Driscoll almost gets there. He says, hey, I think I should call my friend Charlie. It's my friend. He's a lawyer. And Holland says, oh, well, you could if you want to. I'm not here to stop you, but I don't think Charlie's going to help you. I think we're going to help you. I remember almost like grabbing my hair and just being like, Larry, what are you doing? Call Charlie. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. The Marshall Project is a fantastic nonprofit news organization, and my friend Maurice Shema is one of its best reporters. He hosts a podcast called Smokescreen, Just Say You're Sorry. It tells the story of a brutal murder of a woman who was disparaged by the police to secure a suspect. And that's just the beginning of the questionable techniques used by the investigators as well as the Texas Rangers. So let's first talk about the construction of this piece, because to say it's an article or a podcast tied to it is too simplistic. Tell me what you created in your piece, which is called Anatomy of a Murder Confession. Kind of describe for listeners what you're doing before we talk about the actual story, which is unbelievable. Sure. I mean, I am primarily a writer, uh, but I know that writing isn't the only way that people take in information. And this is primarily a story about memory and how faulty our memories can be and the risks that come with kind of exploiting the faultiness of our memories in the criminal justice system. And I wanted the writing to try to capture that, but I also knew that there were other ways to capture it too. And the Marshall Project, we created a kind of multimedia experience where you're reading an article, but you're also looking at visuals where, for example, it's a van on a street corner and the van flips through multiple different iterations to mimic the way that someone's memory of that van changed over time, right? It looked one way and then 10 years later, it looked a different way. Tell me the purpose of the Marshall Project because, you know, people who are listening to our show are used to hearing from people who are independent authors with publishing houses or at The New Yorker. So this feels different. Would you consider the Marshall Project to be like an advocacy program and you're a journalist within it? Because I always think of the Marshall Project as people who are really digging into wrongful convictions, which seems like advocacy to me. Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, there's always been an element of journalism that advocates for kind of a better world in a general sense, you know, whether that's a more transparent society, a society with more equality, fewer disparities of race and gender. But we do really see ourselves as journalists first. The Marshall Project was founded 
founded by a former editor-in-chief of the New York Times, a guy named Bill Keller, with a former hedge fund manager, uh, Neil Barsky, who was just really amped up about the injustices in the criminal justice system. And the mission statement is very broad. It's to create a sense of urgency around that system and to tell stories that help the public kind of understand what the problems are in the system and potential solutions. We're not advocates in the sense of taking positions on individual policies or candidates. We don't advocate for any particular thing, but we advocate for the things that I think all journalists do to an extent, which is more justice in the world and more uh, equality and more transparency. To that end, I think we're in line with a certain generation of investigative journalism outlets like ProPublica or the Texas Tribune that really see the kind of public service mission as the number one thing before entertaining people, before telling a story. You know, we want people to understand the system and then we think, okay, what stories are going to help people understand the system better? And that's really, I think, how I came to this story and how I felt like this story was sort of special is that on the one hand, it's a twisty true crime narrative with with lots of exciting surprises in it. Um, but on the other hand, it features all kinds of lessons about the reality of wrongful convictions in the United States, false confessions, how it is that psychology works in the way that detectives do their work. And then finally, I'll say that I do a lot of stories on wrongful convictions, innocent people who go to prison, but I and my colleagues also, probably the majority of our work is on people who are guilty. And the questions are not, did they do it? The questions are, should prison conditions be this awful? Or should police, let's say, send a canine to maul someone who was selling drugs on the corner? You know, the, the questions can get very complex and rich beyond the question of, is an innocent person in prison? When you and I initially talked about this, you asked me, where should we start? Should we start with the victim, which in this case is Bobby Sue Hill, or do we start from the point of view of someone who's arguably another victim in this case, which would be the suspect, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about this case, where does it make the most sense to start? Can we talk about where we are and the time period? This starts in 2005. Many of us listening probably were, were alive at the time. And we're in a small town called Alito, Texas, A-L-E-D-O, uh, which is in a rural county called Parker County. It's about an hour west of Fort Worth, the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. And it's where, you know, the suburbs give way to vast rolling fields. There are a lot of peach farms out there. It's a really kind of lovely, uh, beautiful area. And within Alito, this one part of this county, there's a rural area that has a road in the trees where there's a lot of really large houses. It's very beautiful. Somebody once described it to me as, if you live in Fort Worth and want a mansion but can't afford a mansion, this is the street you go live in out in the country where the property's cheap and you can have a mansion. So imagine a bunch of houses that are really spread out and really, really big and pretty. In March 2005, there are two teenage boys who are hiking around. I imagine it's, you know, a, a day they have off from school. And they are in this creek bed and they find a pair of trash bags and they see what looks like an ear coming out of one of the trash bags and they realize, oh my God, this is a body. So they sprint. I imagine the kind of panic that would set in if this were me as a high school kid. They sprint to a house nearby. They call 911. The Parker County Sheriff's Office descends on the area and basically has the body of a woman, they figure out. They put out alerts to other law enforcement and eventually it goes on the local news in the in the region that this woman has been found and they can't identify her but she has a pair of tattoos that are very um, specific on her shoulders 
And a member of her family calls in and says, that's Bobby Suhill. And so now they know who she is and they start to investigate, you know, who is this woman and what circumstances could possibly have led her to be so brutally raped and murdered and strangled and, and left, you know, for dead out here in this creek. My own investigation as a reporter kind of mirrored, I, I remember feeling like, oh, this is what I'm doing is similar to what the sheriff's deputies were doing at the very outset, which is just the question of who is this woman? And her family shared with those officers and then eventually with me some detail. And it is a really sort of tragic story that I've spent a lot of time trying to put together because I felt like earlier versions of the story that appeared in local newspapers and police records in, in the courts um, really limited her and, and, and put her in this very specific box where it was easy to, it really almost degraded her memory. So... Bobby Suhill was a young woman from the Fort Worth area. She fell in love with her high school sweetheart, who was uh, from an immigrant family from Southeast Asia. And she dropped out of high school to marry him. They had five kids together. And there was also a sort of dark strain in her family history. She had a cousin who had done sex work and had died of AIDS years earlier. My understanding is that she had a really contentious relationship with her own mother and sex work was sort of accepted almost in the family. And so she falls into, with her husband, even though they have five kids, they fall into using drugs together, harder and harder drugs. And then tragically, he dies in a car accident hmm. and she's left, uh, she's in her 20s, she has five kids and she descends into drug use and sex work in Fort Worth. Her five kids moved in with the husband who had died, his family. And she is living with, you know, a boyfriend in a, um, in these like derelict motels on the outskirts of downtown Fort Worth. Fort Worth has this street called East Lancaster that runs off of downtown that is just famous. I mean, I have friends who grew up in, in Fort Worth who say that's where the sex workers are, that's where the drugs are, that's where there's all those little motels and shelters for unhoused people. And that's where she is. And her cousins were described going and driving down the street, looking for Bobby, finding her, trying to convince her to come home. Eventually, uh, she calls her oldest daughter, who's in, I think, uh, middle or high school at this point, and basically says, like, I'd like to come back and live with you all. I think the most tragic element of this is that I found another cousin of hers who is now in prison himself, sort of speaking of this, like, dark thread in the family. And he said, basically, that she felt like a failure as a mother, and she kind of mm -hmm. drowned that sense of failure in drugs. One version of this is she abandoned her children, but another version is she didn't feel like she could be a proper mother to them. She didn't feel like she'd had the right kind of mothering herself. But then we know that she was about to try to go back and live with them and about to try to pick herself up and get out of this lifestyle. And instead, they have to identify her body. It, it took a lot of work to kind of get that story, but I felt like it was really necessary to understand the full scope of the tragedy that is this case. What was the other reporting like on her life story in contrast to all of the deep research you clearly did on her life story? Oh, it was half a sentence. It was sex worker found. Yeah. In the court records, there was a little bit of a sense that the detectives were almost disparaging her in order to solve the case. And you can debate whether this was okay for them to do, but they would talk to suspects and say, well, you know, she wasn't the daughter of a senator. So like, go <laughs> ahead, basically go ahead and confess because you're not going to get a harsh punishment because no one cared about this woman. Ugh. And so the family members I reached just said, they were ambivalent because on the one hand, they 
We're displeased with elements of my reporting, which we'll get into. Um, it's very complex. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, they wanted the world to know that there was so much more to this person, that she loved her kids, that she had this incredible sense of humor, that she really was an incredible mother to these young kids before she kind of got in her own head and, and fell off the track. So in 2005, Bobby Sue Hill is saying, I am ready to get my life together. I'd like to come back. What happens next that changes everything? So her body is found, and there's a question immediately for law enforcement, which is, how did a woman who was last seen on the streets of East Lancaster in downtown Fort Worth end up in a ditch an hour away in a rural area? Pretty soon, through just, you know, running the different um, investigative leads in downtown Fort Worth, they find a man who was her boyfriend at the time. They often refer to him as a pimp. I have wrestled with whether that word is fair. Hmm. It seems like she was doing sex work. He was also using drugs and mowing lawns to try to make ends meet. And they were living together and he was protecting her, you know, from John's in certain scenarios. I interviewed him myself. And the story that he says to investigators is, I was with Bobby when she was abducted. I saw her be abducted. There was a John who came. He was driving a white van. And, you know, he stopped at this little intersection. He drove back and forth a few times. There was something a little bit uneasy or sketchy about it. I didn't feel totally trustworthy, but she said, no, it's okay. I'm going to go do this job. And so she disappears into the van. Uh, he follows the van as it drives over to a side street. And then at some point after a few minutes, you know, he's standing there, the, the boyfriend, his name is Michael Harden, and he sees a face pop up in the window of a man whose eyes get wide and recognizes him, the protector boyfriend figure from the previous interaction, and kind of flips out and throws the van into gear and speeds off with, with it. And he doesn't see Bobby Suhill's face, so for all he knows, she's already been killed in the van at this point. We don't have an exact time of death to know when it happened. But that is the story that he tells to investigators. Investigators do what, what they do. They set him up with a sketch artist who draws an image of that face. So the police believe him, Michael, the boyfriend who is also her protector. I mean, this does not seem like a credible witness to me. How do we know he's not involved? My sense is that they decided that they believed him, that his story was broadly corroborated, although this was a whole universe of people whose memories were tainted by drug use. And in my own investigation of the case, the one kind of point in his favor, so to speak, is that A, his story has remained remarkably consistent in certain ways, but B, it is impossible to imagine how or why, if he was involved, she would have ended up in this ditch an hour west in this small town that people in East Lancaster wouldn't necessarily know. That said, it is entirely possible that he's uh, lying. And, and in fact, later on in this case, an investigator who's looking into it, finds an aunt and asks the aunt, when was the last time you spoke to her? And she gives a date. And it's in fact after the date that he gave that she was abducted. So it's also possible that his story isn't exactly wrong, but that she wanted to get away from him and she did get away. And then her death had nothing to do with this white van and this man that he saw drive off with her. Hmm. Everything is an option still. And, and I think a, a claim that a lot of lawyers working on the case now have made to me is that Basically, this case was never going to be an easy one to solve. And I think her family acknowledged that too. This was a murder committed in a scenario where people are looking out for themselves. There's a culture of being opposed to snitching. So it's, yes, reasonable to assume that the boyfriend could have been involved. Reasonable to assume that his entire story is just faulty. Reasonable to assume he made it up to protect someone else. 
when I interviewed him and kind of got into this world, I mean, I tracked him down to one of these derelict motels um, in Fort Worth. I mean, everything was just so depressing and desperate in terms of the circumstances that it sort of felt like there was a whole universe of things I didn't know in terms of who's protecting whom with what story. So Michael sits down with a sketch artist in 2005 once his girlfriend is discovered and her body's discovered. He sits down and he works with the sketch artist. What does this man look like who's in this white van? So according to Harden, to Michael Harden, the boyfriend, the man in the white van has a big bushy mustache. He's kind of got a, a bit of a receding hairline. If you were to just look at this photo, in passing, you might think this is a Latino man. You might think that he's, you know, of Mexican heritage, although, you know, sketches are a, an art as much as a science. But but this is all to say that the sketch does not lead to any suspects to any matches. And around this time, I should say there is a suspect that emerges because he reports that his white van was stolen. In a nearby town, uh, a man named Tim Dawson basically calls the police and says, a sex worker stole my white van. Threads of that sound similar to this case, right? So they bring him in. They ask him about the details. He, he claims that, a, that a, he was with a sex worker and she stole his van, but he claims to have no knowledge of Bobby Sue Hill, know nothing about this case. Added to the, the mysteriousness, he lives in Weatherford, Texas, which is the county seat of Parker County, which is just a stone's throw from Alito. So he also lives somewhat near the place her body was found. He's been arrested in the past uh, for various violence, but he basically has no knowledge and they don't press him, or at least at a certain point, they just give up on pressing him because he says, I know nothing about this. And you know, his connection is circumstantial, circumstantially f fairly strong, but, you know, they, they kind of reach a, a barrier in the investigation. And at that point, the case goes entirely cold. So to situate this in history, over the last 20 years, the number of cold cases has been going up because the number of homicides that are solved has been going down. And this case just kind of enters that ocean of unsolved cold cases out there that Texas law enforcement hopes to solve someday, but is not exactly uh, prioritizing. Why is that? That's such an odd statistic. You would think with more advances in forensic science that you would be solving more cases instead of fewer. I think a distrust of the police sometimes makes it hard for them to actually solve it. So you look at a case like this, I imagine many of those people in Fort Worth who were around Bobby Sue Hill and her boyfriend at the time don't trust the police and are so like less likely to, to talk to them about what they saw and heard. For all of the advances in forensics, genealogy, et cetera, these are expensive and time-intensive processes. You know, any one case takes a lot of effort to solve. And as law enforcement officers have told me that their departments are just generally cash-strapped and just kind of honestly have to jump to the next one every every day. So if there's a new murder, they have to start solving that one. And so cases are allowed to go cold. But to combat that problem, and this is where the next element of our story comes in, the Texas Rangers decided to create a basically unsolved crime cold case unit. Now, the Texas Rangers, or the 1% of listeners who have never heard of them, are this 200-year-old law enforcement agency in Texas that have kind of almost mythical ties to the early history of Texas. They, they existed even before Texas was a state. They are associated with all kinds of atrocities in the 1800s. But by the early 2000s are treated as this elite, almost like FBI meets CIA element of the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is our statewide law enforcement body. And typically, the best of the best among the highway patrol troopers are elevated to the position of being a Texas Ranger. There's 
160 and change in across the state. And in the early 2000s, they decide to create a unsolved crimes cold case unit that they say is going to use the best of the new forensic tools that we have to try to solve cases. Around 2013, 2014, there's a small break in the case of Bobby Zuhill. There was a cigarette butt that was found near her body in the ditch in Parker County. And there's a DNA hit on the cigarette butt that it matches a woman. That woman is brought in for questioning. She is, from the audio, it's clear, sort of horrified by Bobby Suhill's death and claims, I know nothing about it. She says, I had this one boyfriend who tried to strangle me this one time. They go and interview him. He says, I don't know nothing about nothing. (laughs) You know, again, you talk about distrust of the police. And there's really nothing to pin anything on him or her beyond just that tiny bit of DNA on a cigarette butt, which, to be fair, they could have thrown into the same ditch a week or a year later, and the connection to the body is not particularly tight. Around that time, though, the Texas Rangers have really amped up their cold case unit, and a Texas Ranger named James Holland comes into the picture to try to to solve this case again. He looks at the file and he says, well, this cigarette butt has gone nowhere, but why don't we try Tim Dawson again? Remember, he's the one who had described having his white van stolen. And, and basically, Holland at this point, he's been a Texas Ranger for five to 10 years. I think he became one in 2008. He's developing this reputation for being really, really good at interrogations, for being the guy who walks into the room and spends the hours and gets the confession every time. So he starts to try to solve the case again. And he goes back to Tim Dawson and they spend a few hours together. Dawson continues to say, I have no knowledge of any of this. This is, in fact, the interview where Holland says, well, Bobby Suhill wasn't exactly a debutante cream of society, so go ahead and confess and no one will care. And I interviewed Tim Dawson and he told me that that when a microphone was not going, he said to Holland, well, if you won't care about closing this case so bad, I didn't do it, you didn't do it. So like, why don't you take the friggin' charge? You know, basically just spitting in his face in a way. And, and Holland gives up. But this is where things get really strange. Holland then goes back to Michael Harden, the boyfriend, and he interviews him again. And he starts to use these techniques that are meant to get Hardin to really remember things that at this point have happened 10 years in the past. And so there's really interesting language where he says, you know, let's run through the events in backwards chronology and let's imagine you're high up on a telephone pole looking down at the scene. You know, these are tools that I did a lot of research on them to understand how accepted they are. And elements of them are very accepted by psychologists at being good at kind of relaxing your brain into a state where you can pick up some memories that you maybe didn't realize were in there. But it also raises a risk of confabulation, of kind of inventing something and then having that become your memory. And then Holland says, well, we want to try this other thing, which is to hypnotize you. year are we in when we have James Holland, the Texas Ranger, is now talking to Michael, the boyfriend, trying to figure out what happened and sort of, it sounds like he's trying to do some memory tricks with him to take him back in time. Mm -hmm. And this is in late 2014. Okay. At this point, the Texas Rangers have been using hypnosis to try to solve crimes for 20, 30 years. At this point, psychologists, researchers, 
are basically screaming, this is really risky. So hypnosis, I mean, it sounds like we, we all think of sort of a party trick or getting you to quit smoking with a hypnotist. Yeah. Um, in the context of law enforcement, it's really about relaxing the witness or if it's in the case of maybe a sexual assault, the victim, and getting them into this sort of hyper-relaxed state where they are just really, really focused, laser-focused on the sort of pictures in their heads from the past, right? So there's this video of a Texas Ranger hypnotist coming in to Michael, the boyfriend, and counting down from, you know, a high number and imagining, you know, you're on a beach and there's stuff about like going through a doorway and grains of sand and this sort of weird language that is meant to get him into this relaxed state. And the audio is a little bit um, unsatisfying because at a certain point, Michael is just mumbling. And you imagine, you know, you're super relaxed and you're kind of mumbling your memories. Now, why is this risky? What researchers have told me is that when you're in that really relaxed state, you're also kind of suggestible. So the Texas Ranger may do his best not to give you new information, but if you're not careful, you may just kind of invent something in your mind. You know, we all, if you just imagine you've got a memory, if you just try to like hypothesize like, oh, was the t-shirt red or was it green? And you kind of go with red. And then the more time you spend on that, the more, you know, the red t-shirt gets kind of locked into your memory and suddenly you remember it definitively as a red t-shirt. And and so the problem isn't just that you have potentially false memories, it's that you become more confident in your false memories. So he comes out of hypnosis, he gets back in the room with Texas Ranger James Holland and a, a new forensic sketch artist. So remember in 2005, he had spoken to one and now he is back again with the sketch artist, a new sketch artist, and describes the face of the man. And we have basically an entirely new face. It looks nothing like the 2005 face. If you had thought the 2005 face sort of looked like a Latino man, this new man is pretty definitely looks like a white man, middle-aged, flat top haircut. The bushy mustache has disappeared and you now have what looks like a little bit of five o'clock shadow. The face is definitely more gaunt in a way, uh, just like hollower cheeks a little bit. Mm -hmm. In addition, the and this is, I think, where I was really particularly fascinated as well, the van changes. So in 2005, we were talking about a minivan. Michael said, yeah, the guy drove a minivan. It had a bunch of windows on the sides. It had a very long pointed sort of nose, like the front hood was very long. So you have an image in your head, right? Nine years later, following the hypnosis, following all these memory tricks that the Texas Rangers are using, he says, uh, actually, it was a big work van. So the color hasn't changed. It's still white, but it's now a big boxy work van, one of those ones that has like no windows on the sides and a very squished front hood. So two different, entirely different white vans. Now, part of the reporting and research of this was looking at the materials and then also going to researchers who have done studies of human memory and eyewitness identification and confessions, et cetera, and asked them, like, what do you make of this? And basically they said, well, I know, knowing nothing about this case, I can just tell you that memory never gets better over time. It only gets worse. Hmm. There's no way that this man, nine years after the crime, produced a more accurate representation of what happened than he did in the immediate aftermath. So treat the new sketch and the new van with tremendous skepticism. The Texas Rangers, instead of being skeptical, take one more step. They they take that face, and remember, 10 years have passed. 
They use aging technology. So you know how when you look at them in the old days, it was on a milk carton, you'd have the missing child and they would run it through some computer program to imagine what the kid looked like five years later. They do something similar with the face of the perpetrator in this case, where they age the suspect's face. And this is a flyer that goes out to other law enforcement and eventually to the media and to the public. And so in newspapers in the greater Fort Worth area, you have these images of the hypnosis-induced sketch and hypnosis-induced van that are now there for the public to see. One of the things that I'd like you to talk about now would be one of the top reasons we know that people are wrongfully convicted is witness misidentification. Going back to the idea that he first had a sketch of someone who was Latino, also cross-racial misidentification is pretty common too. Even at the onset, when they have a sketch artist in 2005 talking to Michael, how reliable do we think that would have been even at the time? Someone who's going through like a trauma, his girlfriend is taken away in this van, he sees this guy for a second. It's still valuable to have a sketch, but is it also not dangerous to have a sketch of someone who is sort of a generic sketch of someone of a different race? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. There is a long history in this country of tragedies in which someone commits a crime and someone else goes to prison because either a witness or in some cases, even more tragically, the victim themselves, um, if it's a sexual assault, uh, misidentifies who did it. And typically you see this in the realm of lineup identifications, right? Where let's say you have a white woman who was sexually assaulted and it was a black man who did it. And the police bring in a lineup of, you know, five Black men from the same neighborhood. We just know, and this is not really to denigrate the victims in these cases, we just know that human memory is faulty and that that is a problem that the criminal justice system, you know, has to confront and um, well-meaning investigators are doing their best to to deal with it. But in earlier eras where the science was not as robust or where police were putting, you know, getting convictions over getting the accurate truth, you just have a lot of scenarios where the victim or a witness picks someone out of the lineup and then they become the lead suspect and then they are coerced in whatever way to be convicted, to be wrongly convicted of a crime and sometimes spend years or decades in prison for it. So let's go back to this brand new sketch of the white man, middle-aged, flat top haircut. First, does this look like Tim Dawson? I'm assuming not, the guy who originally owned a van. You know, I'm gonna pause and say that this was a moment where I had to just check humbly my own subjectiveness because like, it does it look like him? It doesn't not, but does it really? No. I mean, the sketch is so generic. And Tim Dawson also just kind of looks like a middle-aged white guy. I will say Tim Dawson looks nothing like the 2005 sketch at all. But the 2015 sketch, like, he doesn't not look like him. Something I really want to be careful of in this is to not just sort of cast undue suspicion on Tim Dawson. I don't recall him having a, a solid alibi, but the, the links to the crime were still very circumstantial and limited. Um, so there's no reason to think that he secretly did it and is out there. But the sketch goes out there, and this is where the story takes what I describe as like a very small town turn. It goes out in a newspaper called The Weatherford Democrat. And there's a man named Gene Burks who runs a pawn shop in Weatherford. There's a guy who comes into his pawn shop frequently named Larry Driscoll. 
Gene knows Larry not only because he comes into the pawn shop to buy things or sell things, but also because he is the handyman for Gene's neighbor. So you imagine Gene goes out to pick up the newspaper and he frequently sees Larry Driscoll mowing his neighbor's lawn. They wave, they know each other. Weatherford's got fewer than 50,000 people in it. It's a small place where everyone knows everyone. And Gene Burks told me that he gets the Weatherford Democrat and he just sits in his pawn shop all day on the counter and he keeps looking at it and he keeps thinking, that kind of looks familiar. And then eventually it snaps in his mind and he goes, that kind of looks like Larry. And again, as I said before, does it look like Larry? Well, it's subjective. Like, it doesn't not, but it's like two white men in their, in their 40s and 50s. Like, it's pretty, pretty blurry. He shows it to his wife. Does you think that looks like Larry Driscoll? She goes, eh, no, not really. Uh, he shows it to other people in the pawn shop. They're like, ah, eh, maybe. But it's enough that Gene calls to the Texas Rangers. Gene himself also struck me as a someone who maybe maybe reads and, and watches a lot of true crime and and has a kind of con- oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say like has a certain confidence about his ability to like do the police's work for them. So he googles Larry's house where the body was found and discovers that they're like less than a mile from each other oh, and thinks it's like oh wow that's compelling. So he calls the Texas Rangers. He gets through to James Holland and he says you know I think this kind of looks like Larry Driscoll. And so the Texas Ranger James Holland looks into Driscoll and finds out that yes he lives near the crime scene. And his day job is actually that he works, in addition to being a handyman, for the local jail. And so the jail will, like, send inmates out to do, like, road work, you know, mow medians in the highway, whatever. And he oversees that. So he's a actually a licensed jailer. Holland drives over to this barn where Larry is working and... Basically, he just approaches Larry Driscoll and says, I want to talk to you. Um, we think you might be able to help us solve a crime. And this is the beginning of two very dramatic days of interrogation in which um, Larry is pulled from saying, I know nothing about this, to a full confession to the murder of Bobby Sue Hill. Um, and a huge part of my reporting is understanding how that happened and is there any reason to believe Larry's confession? Wow. And that's another thing that we know is a very large portion of people who have been wrongfully convicted are there because of false confessions. And I think that oftentimes people I encounter say, well, they wouldn't confess if they weren't guilty, which is bullshit. People confess when they are innocent. They do, especially when they don't call an attorney. I agree that it's bullshit. I also, I think, came into this story knowing that that was a common sentiment and and having a real empathy for that sentiment. Because like, I get it intuitively. It feels so weird because all of us cannot imagine that we would confess to a crime we didn't commit. And I think actually Larry Driscoll would have said, I would have never confessed to a crime that I didn't commit until I was in the room with this ranger and going through this process. And so part of why I wanted to tell this story and go deep into it was that I thought it was just an incredibly valuable case study or illustration of what these tactics look like when they're being used in their full manipulative power. When Larry Driscoll is being interrogated by the Texas Ranger James Holland, based on the sketch, based on this armchair detective who says this guy lived very close to where Bobby Sue Hill's body was found, and that's about it, what techniques is Holland using to be able to elicit a confession out of somebody who I'm going to assume you're going to tell me was actually innocent? 
It's really fascinating. The way that I came into the story, just for context, is that I was told about this case by the Innocence Project of Texas. I had gotten to know the lead lawyer there who had taken on Larry Driscoll's case and fully believed in his innocence. As a result of talking to him about it, I sent Larry a letter. Larry sent me back a letter. Eventually, I go out to the prison where he is and interview him at length about this. And the way that he tells the story, the Texas Ranger approached him in the barn and said, we think you may be able to help us. And then that turns into, we think you may have witnessed something. And Larry, at this point, says, well, sure, it's possible I witnessed something and didn't realize it. And the story at first is, you know, maybe you were in the area and picked up this woman and was one of the last people to see her alive. And so we need your help. And Larry racks his brain and says, well, I don't really remember ever being in that area. And this is the point at which the first crucial technique starts to show up. And that is deception or lies. So it's entirely legal for law enforcement to lie to suspects in the interrogation room. And law enforcement says we need to do this basically to catch the guilty. And the lie at first is, well, there's a record that the local police have you around the time and place of the crime, that you were in a white van driving around and you were on a list of men that was known to sex workers, or at least your license plate was on there. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe you're not that guy, but uh, help us out here. Why would you be on that list? And so Larry starts thinking, well, why would I be on that list? And he starts racking his brain, like, when have I been in that area? And keep in mind, this is all lies. It's, it's BS. There's no record of him being in that time and place. But the lie is enough to get Larry sort of imagining, okay, I guess there was this one time when my dad had fallen on hard times and, and was in a Salvation Army shelter around that area and I went to visit him. And then, you know, I guess I I was doing some contract work and I guess I bid on some jobs at some houses near there. But I think I was always driving a blue truck, not a white van, right? So you see this process of him racking his brain. And the more he then produces, the more Holland, the Texas Ranger, thinks, oh, wait a minute, this guy was lying to me before. He knows more than he's letting on, and I'm starting to pull the truth out of him, right? So there's this dance that starts to go on, and lies are the way that that Holland starts to kind of pull it out. But over time, he starts to ratchet up the pressure, and he says, well, we think you can help us solve this crime, but we want to be absolutely sure that you know, you're telling us the full truth, so would you be willing to take voluntarily a polygraph? At this point, Larry says, well, you know, maybe I need a lawyer. Do you think I might need a lawyer? He doesn't explicitly ask for one. So it's just vague enough that the ranger says, well, we don't think a lawyer is going to help you. You just need to help us, you know, search your memory and take the polygraph. You know, I'm sure you're going to ace it, Mm. but let's just do the polygraph to be sure. Larry says, all right. So he takes it. And one of the questions is, did you cause the death of this woman, Bobby Sue Hill? And he says, no. And then the polygrapher says, "Uh uh-oh, this is a lie. Mm. And Larry's like, how is that possible? I don't think I killed anybody. I have no memory of killing anyone. And Holland says, well, you know, sometimes your body remembers things that your brain doesn't remember. In reality, we know that polygraph tests are notoriously unreliable. They're not admissible in court. They're intimidating, though, and that's the point. That's absolutely it. It's intimidating. And so suddenly Larry starts to think, oh, my God, like there's there's these little moments in his mind where he thinks, is it possible I killed this moment and just don't remember it? I, I can't imagine that. I try to imagine just the experience of trying to reckon with the idea that you could have killed somebody, that you're a murderer and don't remember it, that would be very head spinning and really destabilizing. It's important to remember that the Texas Rangers are considered the elite of the elite. And Larry Driscoll has lived in Texas most of his life. He knows this. And 
Another suspect once said to me, well, if a Texas Ranger said I did it, I guess I must have done it because they get their man and they're always right. And so Driscoll's also got the prestige of the Texas Rangers sort of tainting the, the picture here. And eventually Holland moves into a couple more tactics. One is hypothetical language. So he says, well, let's just say hypothetically, you know, we're shooting the shit here. We're bullshitting. Let's just say you did do it. What would have happened? You know, how would this have gone down? You know, you're in the van and the story emerges that, that Holland is advancing that tries to sort of let Larry off the hook, which is to say, hey, maybe she, you got, she got in the van. You were going to pay her for a good time. And then this black man, her boyfriend, Michael Harden, shows up at the window and you get scared and you freak out and you go into a kind of military mode. And Larry's a, a veteran, so he thinks this will appeal to him. You snap into a kind of, I don't know, vague PTSD trauma thing and you kill her and you freak out and then you go jump the body by your house. And he kind of is throwing these little possibilities at Larry and Larry keeps being like, I guess that's possible, but I don't remember any of this. But over time, the hours pile up, the exhaustion piles up, the sense of hopelessness and that you're never getting out of this room until you confess, all of that piles up. And eventually Larry gives in and says, sure, okay, but still I don't remember it. So he confesses, but it's a very weak confession. I think about this, my dad and I, you know, my dad was a criminal law professor at UT for decades, and we would talk about this all the time. And he would say he wished, I think it was three things he would say, I wish that everyone knew you had a right to an attorney. He would tell my friends and me, if you ever get stopped by the police, you need to call an attorney. Innocent people call attorneys. He said, I wish people knew that police could lie to get information out of you, to not believe everything that the police are saying if this is something that's serious and they're bringing you down, and that there are people who can help you, that all is not lost, that, you know, the criminal justice system can work but you have a right to an attorney and you need that, that innocent people do talk to attorneys, which I thought was always great advice. It is good advice. And it's advice that I had heard many times and was rattling around in my brain as I listened to these tapes. So I got, oh, something like, um, I don't know, six, seven hours of, of interrogation audio of Holland and Driscoll together. And there's all these times where Driscoll almost gets there. He says, hey, I think I should call my friend Charlie. And Holland says, well, wait, who's Charlie? And, and Driscoll says, oh, he's my friend. He's a lawyer. And Holland says, oh, well, you could if you want to. I'm not here to stop you, but I don't think Charlie's going to help you. I think we're going to help you. And I'm listening to this years later. And just, I remember almost like grabbing my hair and just being like, Larry, what are you doing? Call Charlie. And granted, I, I also think it's worth noting here that at no point in my reporting has it ever come off that Texas Ranger Holland thought he was coercing an innocent person into a false confession. I think that he had convinced himself that Larry Driscoll had committed this murder. And and it was a problem of, if anything, tunnel vision of, you know, shutting off the little question marks in your brain that are like, wait, this isn't adding up. And just saying, well, like, look, I've got this guy. Look, he keeps offering new memories. Hmm. Look, now he's even willing to go down this road and talk hypothetically. And eventually Larry breaks and confesses. And then, you know, he's arrested and his life transforms. He goes from overseeing jail inmates to being a jail inmate. He sits in prison for two plus years and is confronted with this problem of, I want to go to trial, but I just don't think 
a jury's ever going to believe me that I confessed to a crime I didn't commit. In the same way that you and I talk about how most people think that's impossible, Larry Driscoll was confronting, you know, this jury in in rural Parker County of his peers who he just thought were, were never going to believe that, that he falsely confessed to this crime. So he ends up taking a no contest plea, which means that he's not exactly acknowledging guilt, but he is acknowledging the strength of the case against him. And he takes a 15-year sentence and goes to prison. Does Michael Harden look at him and say, yeah, that's him. That's the guy with the wide eyes that I saw looking at me before he took off with my girlfriend in the van. Well, first of all, and shockingly to me, the cops never go to him with a picture of Larry Driscoll. Oh, okay. After he's hypnotized and um, he was actually in jail at this point on like a low-level drug charge. After the hypnosis session, all that, they get the sketch. They never go back to him and check the picture of Larry Driscoll with him. I did it though. So that all was 2015. I'm coming into this case to report 2020, 2021. And I do find uh, Hardin at this little motel. He was very hard to find. But once I found him, I pulled up on my phone a picture of Larry Driscoll. And I said, what do you think? This is him. And and just stared at it for a while. And he just goes, maybe not. Like he just hems and haws and hedges because, and I, I feel for him, you know? the yeah. This is a, the man you saw for like two seconds, 15 years ago, Since then, you've been asked to give a sketch twice. You've been hypnotized. Different race. Different race. You've been in and out of jail. You've had your own troubles in life. You've seen, this is to quote one psychologist, you've seen thousands of faces in the interim. Yeah. So, you know, does it look like him? It doesn't not, but it's hardly a dead ringer. So Larry Driscoll has taken 15 years and he settles in, where is he, Huntsville? He settles into prison life. Yeah, it's in a it's in a tiny town called Woodville, about an hour from Huntsville, where it's just like, I, it's not a prison I'd ever, this was really sad to me. I went to the uh, to prison to interview him and I talked to the warden and she said she I was the first journalist she could ever remember coming to interview a prisoner. Like it, it gives you a taste of just how cut off these places are. Wow. So yeah, he settles into his time, um, but he also starts writing letters to the Innocence Project of Texas Eventually, his case makes it to the desk of a law student, actually, in Fort Worth, a woman named Ashley Fletcher, who's really a kind of undersung hero of this story. Um, Ashley's in law school, like, you know, any other law student. She signs up for the Innocence Project Clinic, and one of the jobs they give the law students is to just sift through cases that come into them uh, as like a first, you know, pass screening before the lawyers look at it. This case kind of sticks out a little bit because... Larry has access to and sends her a full transcript of his interrogation, hmm. of his exchange with Holland. And she describes to me just sort of like hunkering down on her couch for hours and reading it and just being horrified and and sort of going to her law professor who also runs the Innocence Project of Texas. And the way he describes the story, he's like, she seemed traumatized by what she'd read. Um, you know, that there was just, she was horrified by this confession. And then I read it, I listened to the tapes and it felt like, Innocence Project lawyers have spent the last 10, 20 years working on false confession cases and finding what are all the tricks and tools that that cops can use to coerce one. And this was just chock full of all the worst practices. So uh, Larry has been working with the Innocence Project of Texas. And late 2022, there was this shocking development in the case where um, Larry had been in prison for so long that he was actually eligible for parole. And in a rare moment of surprise, the parole board basically bought into his claims of innocence enough to say, you're not dangerous to anybody, you can go home on parole. 
Wow. He gets out, but he's still living, you know, with the ankle monitor. His movements are very restricted. And so he's still trying to clear his name. Meanwhile, James Holland, the Texas Ranger, has gone on to fame and success. He took all confessions from a, a famous serial killer in California named Samuel Little. It's a name that may be familiar to some listeners. Where the case stands now is that the Innocence Project of Texas is trying to retest all the DNA from the case, some of which hadn't been tested or hadn't been tested with the current level of scientific advancement in terms of what's possible with DNA, right? Where you can take very small amounts and um, kind of blow, zoom in and blow them up and, and connect them to people. So I think the the silver bullet hope for Larry and his lawyers is that some DNA is going to match, you know, some known perpetrator who is killing women at this time and place. But in lieu of that, it is hard to imagine what it would take to get the right person and, and so part of the tragedy here is that the law enforcement process was just so messed up that it almost like clouds our ability to get the actual truth. What does Bobby Sue Hill's family think? Do they think that Larry is the one who killed her or do they believe he was innocent? So Bobby Sue Hill has a large family. She had five kids. She had a brother. She had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. And I've only reached a few of them. Many of them declined to talk to me at the outset. And then many of them also declined to talk to me after my article came out. And I think that's largely because the few who did talk to me have no reason to doubt at this point that Larry Driscoll did it. They believe in his guilt. They've gone on this horrible journey where, you know, Bobby Suho is murdered and then the case goes cold and they basically think this is never going to get solved. No one cares. And then the Texas Rangers come along in 2015 and say, we've got the guy, we found him. And this is shocking to the family. This is how they describe it to me. I mean, they just never thought this was going to get solved. So here comes the solution. And so then eight years later, the Innocence Project of Texas is showing up, a journalist, me, is showing up saying, you know, there's some real flaws in this that, you know, you should be aware of. And it was really sort of tricky for me in terms of the ethics and the, just the human morality of how to approach this with the family to say, you're entitled to your privacy. You don't need to talk to me if you don't want to. I want to give readers a sense of who Bobby Suhill was beyond the two sentences about her being a sex worker in these old articles. Some family members said, yes, okay, we want to tell you all about her. But this is all a long way of saying that they still, at least publicly, believe in Larry's guilt. And if that is starting to change, I don't know yet. Lastly, I'll say that because I spoke with so few of them, I wanted to understand what it is they're confronting. And so I sought, there's a really interesting organization called Healing Justice that works therapeutically with families who have lost a loved one to murder, but the case ends up being a wrongful conviction. That's a very unique and rough and complex experience for people. And so I ended up interviewing this organization and some of the families they've been working with about what that's like, because it's this double trauma. You lose your loved one, then you think you have the answer and then the answer gets ripped away again and you're back to square one. And so the ultimate tragedy of this case to me is that law enforcement handled it in such a way that her family now has to lose the promise of a solution and go back to not knowing who killed her and also whether that person may still be out there. Is there a suspicion that this person is a serial killer? Is there anything else sort of connected? I know that we've mentioned a few things, but do profilers, do you think, think this is indicative of someone who has done this before or has done this since? Yes. And the reason for that is not that any 
elite profiler has come into the case. But Texas Ranger Holland himself indicated in his reports suspicion that, well, he, in his case, he thought Larry committed these other crimes. But, but there were two other women around this time. There was one other woman who was a sex worker who was found dead in a creek, similar to the one that Bobby Sue Hill was found in, but actually in Fort Worth itself. Um, but same rough time, same rough MO. And then there's a woman who told police at the time, yeah, there was this guy who took me in his van and he started driving on the highway in the direction of, you know, Weatherford, Alito, the places where Bobby Suho was found. And he basically pulled a knife on me and was like trying to basically rape me and coerce me. And at one inner, I think it's like a stoplight or an exit off the highway, I managed to like basically push the door open and get out of the van and escape. She described that man, but you know, again, there weren't a lot of like really specific details that you could tie to anyone. She said he wore like a tie, like he was almost like a like a cleaned up businessman type. So in theory, you know, this could lead somewhere. Maybe there was like a known serial killer who was wearing a tie or something. Yeah, there are these little threads out there that you kind of see long in the reports law enforcement sort of gave up on because they just couldn't get any further with it. And then the more time passes, as we know with cold cases, the harder it is to find these witnesses again. Um, you know, this woman, it's hard to know where she is now or how to find her. Sometimes people weren't even using their real names. Yeah, I, I think there is still some hope for solving who killed Bobby Sue Hill. But, you know, as with any of these cases, the more time goes by, the harder a lift it is and the more time and effort and resources it takes to solve. This case, as a conclusion, seems to me to have all of the pitfalls of wrongful conviction, right? You've got cross-racial misidentification. You've got a false confession. You've got, you know, bad science, hypnosis, and a polygraph on top of it. It's like every check mark you can think of of a wrongful conviction. What is the big message that you want listeners and readers to take away from this story? Well, one is call a lawyer. Yeah, that's my message too. <laughs> if you're ever picked up, I mean, this is the like news you can use element of this case. It's like, call a lawyer, you know, don't be like Larry Driscoll. But I also think a big takeaway is that in this era, you know, there's more and more cold cases. There's increasingly sort of an industry of profilers, of well-meaning law enforcement across the country who are trying to solve these old cases. And I think that there's sometimes an incentive with these old cases to do the sort of Hail Mary pass and to take really big risks with some of the tools that we use to try to solve them. And so those tools include, you know, the hypnosis, the sketch art, the coercive interrogation techniques. And I, I, I think a big lesson here is that we need to just take care on risk, you know, be careful about, you know, just throwing all of these tools at the wall and seeing what sticks, because some of these tools are um, manipulative and problematic in the sense that they can lead to the wrong person. And so we have to kind of reckon with like how much risk as a society are we willing to take on some of these Hail Mary cold cases to not do things that, that risk putting innocent people in prison and just getting closure for the sake of closure without getting the truth. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. 
This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.